Hey everybody, welcome to another Sermon Extra. I'm going to try this uh, doing audio and video for the first time, so excuse me if there's any hiccups. Uh, this is coming after 1 Kings chapter 4, where we looked at just the various ways Solomon's wisdom is manifested. How it was manifested in uh, the cabinet ministers he appointed in his country, in the way he even taxed the people. And we saw the people's great joy and peace during the reign of Solomon. But I want to focus on the end of this passage, where we, where we read of Solomon's wisdom in various fields. First uh, Kings chapter 4, 29 to the end says that God gave Solomon wisdom and understanding beyond measure and breadth of mind like the sand of the seashore, so that Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all the people of the East and all the wisdom of Egypt. For he was wiser than all other men, wiser than Ethan the Ezraite, and Heman, Calcol, Darda, the sons of Mahal. And his fame was in all the surrounding nations. He also spoke 3,000 proverbs, and his songs were 1,005. He spoke of trees from the cedar that is in Lebanon to the hyssop that grows out of the wall. He spoke also of beasts and of birds and of reptiles and of fish. And people of all the nations came to hear the wisdom of Solomon and from all the kings of the earth who had heard of his wisdom. And the point to be made, one of the points to be made in this is where wisdom can be found. We often assume that wisdom is this exclusive, specific, spiritual quality. But this passage acknowledges that there is wisdom even in the wise men of Egypt, a pagan nation, no God-fearers there. Uh, There's wise people in all the surrounding nations, and it's acknowledged that Solomon is wiser than them all, But there is wisdom to be found even in unbelievers. This is an important point because there is often a view that says that if a source, if information has come from anyone that's not a Christian, um, it's not really to be trusted. We shouldn't really take that sort of advice. But even if we take an example of, say, John Calvin, uh, the, the great reformer, he greatly appreciated and learned from the philosophy of the Stoics, particularly people like Seneca, he really appreciated their works. Uh, He was willing to critique them. He thought they didn't have a right view of suffering and purpose, recognizing God as the source, but understood that they had a lot of good to offer. Uh, He critiques them just as he critiques uh, the theologians of the medieval period for being too speculative, for looking at too uh, minute of questions and foregoing godliness. Uh, here, here's something from Calvin's uh, commentary in the book of Titus um, on this note. He says, We can infer that those persons are superstitious who do not venture to borrow anything from heathen authors. He says it's actually superstitious, superstitious to say that you can't borrow anything from heathen authors. He says, All truth is from God, and consequently, if wicked men have said anything that is true and just... We ought not to reject it, for it has come from God. Besides, all things are of God, and therefore, why should it not be lawful to dedicate to his glory everything that can properly be employed for such a purpose? He says we can take what's discovered and understood in the world of 
the unbeliever, and we can redeem that for God's glory. People often call this plundering the Egyptians. If you remember, the people of Israel were to ask their Egyptian neighbors for articles of uh, gold, silver, jewelry, and they took that with them, uh, the things that were freely given. They took the the beautiful things they had made, and God gave them to them for their own purposes. And so I think that we can make good and helpful use of various elements of even, say, personal development or self-improvement. Often things in the world are really good at diagnosing or really good at bringing about particular application. I think of a podcast like The Happiness Lab that actually conveys information on a scientific study of what sort of actions make people happy, and you'll be shocked to find how many of them are already seen in Scripture. But it gives good ideas of practical application. So in in that podcast, The Happiness Lab, they talk about the joy that comes from talking to strangers. And instead of being by yourself in silence, to actually just strike up small conversations with people. Or um, how to give charitably and altruistically in a way that is helpful. And ways of giving that are more effective than other ways of giving. Or um, you might even look at the practice of gratitude they talk about. We see that in scripturally, but they give helpful reminders of ways to build in gratitude into your daily routine. Or think of even the minimalistic movement, which is really just a practice of contentment in eschewing of greed. And there's many things we can learn from even that movement of how to um, not let so much of our identity be built upon our stuff, but learn how to be content with less to pursue the things that really matter in life. These sorts of even secular movements can be easily redeemed and brought into a Christian worldview. And so Solomon taught us how we can find wisdom elsewhere. Uh, Also, a second thing I want to look at is uh, the wisdom wisdom of the study of the material world. So we often think of wisdom as a philosophical trait, um, where we consider, say, spiritual or metaphysical things. But there's also wisdom found in... the arts and sciences. And so this passage told us how Solomon had wisdom and understanding of the created order. He was a biologist. He studied trees and plants and animals, and he had great understanding of them. We even You read in the Proverbs of his study of how snakes move on a rock or how the ants work together or the badgers make their homes in the cliffs, all these different things. And to understand creation takes wisdom, it takes discernment, Uh, to develop that deep sense of understanding. And when we are studying creation this way with wisdom, we are studying the works of God. Uh, It was talked about historically that God gave humanity two books to read, the book of nature and the book of scripture. And we read God differently in each of them, but they each speak of him. The created things speak of the creator. Uh, I've heard it also said that On a natural plane, you could say that there are really only two subjects, science and history. Science is the study of what uh, God has made. And and we could include in here uh, the laws of mathematics or the laws of logic. God created these things to be discovered by man. Uh, the, The depths of space, the depths of the ocean, all things, cellular biology, things he has created, which when we study them, we are studying the works of God. But even the study of history is the study of what God has done, how he has providentially ordered the movement through time. And when we study history, we're studying how God in his wisdom has seen fit to have this world ordered. 
Those are the two great subjects in the book of nature. And if we were thinking of the book of special revelation in scripture, the two great subjects there are theology and ethics, or as the Westminster Larger Catechism would say, that we can split up all the teachings of scripture into first, what we're to believe concerning God, and secondly, the duty God requires of man. Now, we often consider those the spiritual subjects, but studying the book of nature, when we study what God has made and what God has done, we are still studying God ultimately. And even though many in this world wouldn't acknowledge it, we can see through the eyes of faith that we are studying the creation God has made, not just nature, but creation, special creation, history, God's providence. And the thing is that often unbelievers read the book of nature better than we do, with a more accurate understanding of parts of history or aspects of science. And we can learn greatly from this, but when we bring the glasses of special revelation, the big difference here is that we see the purpose behind it. It's been said also that um, in the Middle Ages, what was really important in studying the world was what is called teleology, or you could say that's the purpose for which something it's made. The telos is the end. What? Why? It's the question why. And the question of why has been largely lost in science today. It's been replaced by questions of, well, what is it and how does it work? And questions of, well, why is it there to begin with and what purpose is it serving is largely lost. And scripture gives us the telos, the purpose for both science and history. The purpose of science is to give glory to God and to be for the benefit and joy of man who's meant to steward it for the good of his neighbor. The telos of history is also the glory of God, but working um, to move through Christ to the redemption and renewal of all things in the new heavens and the new earth. And when we bring telos to these studies, they're imbued with a greater sense of meaning. And they come under the dominion of the Lordship of Christ. And so Christians should be excited to study um, in the sciences, to study in history. These are not divorced from godliness, but these are, in a sense, a study of God. Uh, There's a quote here I really liked from commentator Dale Ralph Davis. He says, Since God has left the fingerprints of his wisdom everywhere, since there is no place where God does not furnish us with raw materials for godly thinking, Christians should be seized with a rambunctious curiosity to ponder his works, both the majestic and the mundane. The task of wisdom is joyfully to describe and investigate all God's works. I love that. We should have a rambunctious curiosity to learn of God's world. So watch those planet Earth documentaries. Uh, go outside and try to learn the constellations. Whatever it is, studying God's world is studying God's glory and beauty. And uh, the third thing I want to bring up, on a different but related note, is looking at then wisdom in design and production. I've been reading through the book of Exodus, and I was really struck uh, at what is said in Exodus 35 about wisdom given to people who were to construct and help build the tabernacle. Exodus 35:30 to the end says this. Moses said to the children of Israel, "See, the Lord has called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur of the tribe of Judah. He has filled him with the spirit of God in wisdom and understanding, in knowledge and all manner of workmanship." to design artistic works, to work in gold and silver and bronze. 
in cutting jewels for setting, in carving wood, and to work in all manner of artistic workmanship. God gave Bezalel, filled him with the spirit, wisdom and understanding, but for workmanship, to design artistic works. We don't often think of those words going with artistic works. Verse 34, he has put in his heart the ability to teach. In him and Aholiab, the son of Ahazamach, of the tribe of Dan, he has filled them with skill to do all manner of work of the engraver and the designer and the tapestry maker in blue, purple, and scarlet thread and fine linen and of the weaver, those who do every work and those who design artistic works. And Bezalel and Aholiab and every gifted artisan in whom the Lord has put wisdom and understanding to know how to do all manner of work for the service of the sanctuary shall do according to all that the Lord has commanded. These artisans were gifted with wisdom and insight in order to construct a beautiful functional tabernacle for the worship of God. And what, what was the nature of this gifting and wisdom? Some say that this was just like a miraculous supernatural work, but I don't think so. I think this is um, practical wisdom that comes from part natural gifting. Some people are just more skilled working with their fingers or being creative than others, but then also um, built through study and practice to hone those natural skills. But I think what we see here is uh, what I might call a, def- a divine accentuation of these skills that God took what these men had trained in, but he gave them special insight to do extraordinary work on the temple, maybe just creative new ideas that they hadn't have thought of before or new techniques. I think it's a, it's a divine accentuation of the natural and studied skills here. But just the language of how they were filled with the spirit, gifted with wisdom, and this was all to create the dwelling of God. And so I think we do wrong when we disparage people in occupations of design or production. Because we should be, if it it was right to have this spiritual filling of wisdom to produce the dwelling of God, it is also, by the same measure, it's wise and good to seek after that wisdom and understanding of skill as we design and produce the dwellings of God's image bearers, God's people. Uh, God delights when we serve them that way. Uh, We dwell in houses. We dwell in clothing. And so when God gifts people, either through natural talents or as they hone their skills to creatively design elements of housing and decor or of, of clothing and fashion, and then people to produce it and actually construct these things, They are blessing God's image bearers with not just functional places to live, not just functional clothes to wear, but beauty. Because we are created to delight in beauty and enjoy being in beauty. And as wisdom and skill is developed in these areas, God's people are blessed. People created in God's image are blessed. So let's recognize that people even in the occupations of the trades or other elements of technology and design. Um, Seek after the wisdom of God in order to do your job well to serve people. Just as those in the arts and sciences, people who study history and study science, you can glorify God in that. People in production and design glorify God in that. Or if you're in a more intellectual field like philosophy or psychology or uh, even uh, theology, 
these are all aspects of wisdom that God gives to people to be used for his glory. So seek after excellence and seek after the good of your neighbor.